You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Let me ask you this morning to open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 27. If you're new to the Bible, Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It marks the fifth and final book of what's known by Jewish readers as the Torah. The Torah is a Hebrew word translated meaning the law. By Greeks, it's known as the Pentateuch, the first five books. Penta meaning five. Deuteronomy chapter 27, as you're turning there, to give you a sense of orientation for those of you who are new to the Bible, the story of the first five books of the Bible is the story of God's revelation of Himself to His creation through a particular people, through those people to all people, starting first with Adam and Eve and his descendants, and then eventually God would put His electing love on this man named Abram later to be known and renamed as Abraham, and his wife Sarai to be, known and, to be renamed and known as Sarah, and they would become a leader, if you will, a, a, a leader of a nation that did not exist. God raises up such people who He greatly provides for, but those people to whom He is so greatly blessed rebel against Him. A series of that in a number of ways to the first five books of the Bible. We come to the book of Deuteronomy. It's the children of those that were blessed coming out of Egypt after having been in slavery themselves in the land of Egypt for over 400 years. They're brought out of slavery, and they're given a way to follow God into the land He promised them many generations earlier, but they would not trust Him. They would not follow Him. They doubted Him. So God had to teach them a lesson that was painful. All of their generation would die off, minus Joshua and Caleb. But their children that would be born to them would get an opportunity themselves to listen to the Word of God. What was once given in Exodus would be given again to them. Deuteronomy, as a term, means the second law. It's the second giving of what God gave in Exodus. It's an opportunity to say, okay, they failed, but this is an opportunity for you. And they're on the eve about to go into the land that's been promised to them. And God, through His servant Moses, speaks to the people And he wants them to understand the relationship they have to God through the law. This is an important understanding for our text today. It's a rather extensive reading, so stay with me as I read to you, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 9. Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Keep silence and hear, O Israel, this day. You have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping His commandments and His statutes, which I command you today. That day Moses charged the people, saying, When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for their curse. For the curse, rather, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali. 
And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice. Now, let me just stop there. Twelve tribes of Israel, all the people of Israel represented in these twelve tribes. He's basically saying, hey, I want five of you on tribes on this mountain. I want six of you tribes on this mountain. And the sixth, the twelfth remaining tribe, Levites, you're going to speak to these tribes. These Levitical people are going to speak to the rest of the people, and these physical places from these tribes are going to speak back and forth. So it's like pictures sometimes you can imagine here in a song when Chris Judea is leading us in singing. He might say, hey, all those on this left side, you now sing and you guys listen. And all those now on this right side, you now sing and you guys listen. Or, hey, all you men, you now sing and women, you listen. Or, hey, all you women, you now sing and men, you listen. This sense of antiphonal response back and forth. It's powerful. It's provocative. It gets you to think and listen. Well, this is a listening exercise, a declaring exercise. What do the Levites declare in a loud voice? Verse 15, cursed be the man who makes a carved or a cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law, and the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Deuteronomy 28. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Verse 3, by way of contrast, blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you and you, come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake, and He will bless you in the land that the Lord is giving you. 
The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Push pause there. Parents, of which some of you are, others of you at least being children, recognize the reality that parents often teach children by instruction and corresponding consequence. Son, daughter, listen to me. If you do the following, you shall receive. If you don't do the following, you shall receive. And the hope is that the child hears the parent's instruction, and by assessing what's being offered or what's being, I guess, consequentially told, the child would make a wise choice. From a young child, like, well, I would like to have freedom of maybe it's playtime. Or an older child would be like, man, I'd love to be able to have the opportunity to drive the car and to go out with my friends tonight. Or perhaps a young child would be like, I would like to not have the opportunity to have the television taken away from me that I can't watch any television shows. Or perhaps an older child is to say the consequence of what will come back to me and what will be taken away from me by the freedom and privilege I always desire to have. The hope is as a parent puts before the child the opportunities to obey or to disobey and the consequences accordingly, the child would choose wisely. But what if the child does not? Well, there are consequences. Friends, Deuteronomy 27 and 28 is God who has declared Himself as a father to a people, presenting to them options, listen and live, rebel and taste the bitter consequences. Now, here's the question for us this morning. In Miami 2023, what in the world does that conversation, seemingly on two mountaintops, have to do with us today sitting here? Well, that question is answered for us by turning to Galatians chapter 3. Because we're going to see this morning it has everything to do with us today. Because in Galatians chapter 3 is another conversation, not between mountaintops of people, but small young churches filled with new Christians like Grace Churches today being taught how that conversation has bearing on us today. The title of this morning's message is God's Escape Hatch from Galatians chapter 3 verses 10 through 14. What I want us to see here in the text of Galatians 3 is what will be cited specifically by Paul, the very text in part that we just read. So we're looking for the bottom line, if you will, the sneak peek of what's to come. Here's the main point of what we're going to see this morning. Jesus trades places with those who put their faith in Him for their forgiveness of their sins. You see it there on the screen. That is the main point of our text in, Genesis, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Jesus trades places with those who put their faith in him for the forgiveness of their sins. Now we coming into Genesis, or excuse me, Galatians chapter 3, by way of reminder, verses 1 to 5 was Paul telling the Galatians, hey, look at your own experience about how you became a Christian. Look at how the Spirit was given to you because of that. And then in verses 6 through 9, what we saw last week, he's like, hey, don't just look at your own experience. Look at Abraham's example. The family of Abraham has the faith of Abraham. 
If your faith is like Abraham in what the Lord provides, then you are a child of Abraham. That takes us now to our text this morning. Read with me Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Follow along as I read it. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. There's that term, curse, that should be familiar to you now. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous, says there, the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Important text here. Some have said in writing about the book of Galatians that this paragraph sits at the center of which everything before it's been pointing to, everything after it's about to come is pointing to. This is a significant section for us to grasp. And before we kind of break it apart and see it in pieces, let me just make sure we're all on the same page because understandably, so many here are new to the Bible and new to even some of the terminology, therefore, in the Bible. And I want to just identify by brief explanation this very interesting term that comes out. It's been mentioned before, but let me just sort of pull the car over and make sure that we're not leaving anybody behind. It's this term in verse 10, works of the law. Works of the law. You'll notice later on in verse uh, 11 there, you can see where it says, he talks about or excuse me, the end of verse 10, the book of the law. Works of the law, book of the law. This connects back to Deuteronomy as really the summary of connecting back to the first five books of the Bible. The works of the law are actions done to fulfill the Mosaic law, meaning the law that God gave to His people through His servant Moses, known as the Mosaic law, the law He gave to His people in order that they might be able to fulfill the law. What does this include? Number one, keeping the Sabbath. Number two, being circumcised, the very issue being presented before the Galatians. Number three, eating, quote-unquote, clean foods. Number four, participating in ceremonies. Number five, obeying the moral implications of the law. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not covet. Do not lie. This is how you are to fulfill the Mosaic law. This is what is meant by this phrase, works of the law. Now, with that in mind, let's take a look at what God's teaching us here in the text. First thing of what God is teaching us is this. Back to verses 10 through 12. Good enough is not enough. The first thing God is teaching us here in the text is that good enough is not enough enough. What's being discussed here by Paul to the Galatian church is he's dealing with the effects of the law. Those who are under the law do not obey all of it, and they're therefore going to be cursed by it. And I want you to see what Paul did here in Galatians 3, because maybe you missed it. 
Depending on the Bible you have in front of you, maybe you've got some small letters in there, some small numbers in there that maybe point to it. But Paul does something really cool here in Galatians 3, 10 through 14. Paul basically preaches the gospel. He preaches the good news of Jesus by using the Old Testament. You might feel like, you know, hey, I want to talk to my friends about Jesus. Where should I go? And understandably, you might think, well, go to one of the gospels. Go to Matthew. Go to Mark. Go to Luke. Go to John. It's one of these eyewitness accounts of Jesus and his ministry and certainly a ground zero to do so. Or maybe go to 2 Corinthians where Paul started pointing back to the cross. But Paul, he doesn't just go back to Abraham in Genesis 12 and verses 6 through 9. He actually says, you know what? Let's take a tour of the Bible. Let's let the Bible speak to this issue. Let's not just look at one bibliographic example. Let's actually look at the historical record. And what he does here is he basically cites four different Old Testament passages. Go back to verse 10. He says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You know what he's citing here? Deuteronomy 27 verse 26. Friends, this is what we just read. We were just reading Deuteronomy. Paul is bringing to the mind of these people, listen, this has been always written. Now, here's what's so, I think, intriguing to me to consider. Most of the people that are reading this letter to them, they're not Jewish by national background. That's not their ethnic background. Some of them are. Most of them are Gentiles, just like in this room. You might say, Eric, listen, I'm not Jewish. I didn't have a bar mitzvah. I was not raised in the synagogue. This is all very new for me. I'm like, hey, welcome to the family. Galatians are being taught this. You're being taught this because Paul thinks it's really important that you understand how God has always been communicating. Lest you think what I think some of you might still think, which is God of the Old Testament is different than God of the New Testament. Not uncommon way to encounter people sometimes in their perspective. God of the Old Testament looks grumpy. He looks mean. He looks judgmental. All these people dying, all these crazy things happening. That seems so far removed historically and culturally. But the God of the New Testament is like Jesus, like this sort of modern-day hippie walking around with sort of a flowing toga robe, long hair, just kind of passing out flowers, not fists, and telling people to turn to the cheek. That God, that what I can get down with. If you think that way, your ignorance is noted, and I don't mean that to, to in any way speak negatively of you, I mean to say that's a completely inaccurate way to understand the revelation of God's Word. God, the same God that Chris was praying to you just a few minutes ago in our pastoral prayer, that God has been communicating consistently and clearly the entire time the same way. And Paul is pointing this out. Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, when he makes a statement, he's talking about the Old Testament verse that's being cited here, is that the law demanded perfection and that a curse would be attached to the failure to keep any part of it. The breaking of only one command, even once, brings a person under the curse of the law. And since everybody at some point fails the law, then every single person naturally is under a curse. Like, well, that's not very nice. It's honest. The idea that a person can gain divine acceptance by human effort is therefore totally destroyed, not just by Paul and Galatians, but by Moses in Deuteronomy. 
That's what he's saying. Cursed be everyone who does not abide, not by most things, but by all things. Some of you have encountered uh, the ministry of Ray Comfort, kind of a well-known evangelist who likes to both himself practice and teach others to practice how to have sort of quick on-the-street conversations with people that you otherwise would not interact with and maybe see, maybe at a bus stop, maybe at work, whatever. And the, the conversations typically go like this. Do you consider yourself a good person? Yes. Do you think that God will judge you or forgive you? And largely, well, I, I think He's going to forgive me. Why do you think that? Well, I think that because, honestly, I'm not that bad. And he's like, okay, that being true, let me ask you a question. In your entire life, have you ever, ever had a lustful thought? It's a bit of an aggressive question to ask a stranger, but maybe. Have you, have you ever had a, 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 ever said any word that was untrue? I mean, like, have I always told the truth and never told like a little white lie? Yeah, just a little white lie. Well, yeah, I mean, who hasn't, right? Is there ever anything that you took that did not belong to you? You know, maybe a pencil, maybe something at work, maybe something that you did not pray for that you maybe took? Possibly. Okay, so let me just see if I say, if I understand this correctly. He would say this to such an individual. You mean to tell me, as a lustful thought indicates, as God even says, he who has lust in his heart is committed to adultery. So God is going to forgive you and just kind of wipe away the fact that you are an adulterating, lying, stealing person. Which sometimes you can see his videos, people are like, oh, well, I mean, uh, you put it like that, a bit aggressive. All he's trying to basically point out is the reality of what the Bible says. The Bible says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In the 1600s, a collection of pastors and theologians gathered together, known as the Westminster Assembly. One of the byproducts that came out of that was known as the Westminster Shorter Catechism. A catechism is a series of questions and answers to help teach people truth from the Bible in sort of condensed fashion. Question number 84 of Westminster Shorter Catechism asked the question, what does every sin deserve? The answer, every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. You might think, well, sin, that seems a rather extreme reaction. If you think that way, understandably, it's because you don't understand to whom the sin is against. What makes the sin so bad is not simply the act itself or who did it. It's how sin is against a holy, pure, righteous God. Moses I mean, it's not Moses. Paul's not done preaching the gospel from the Old Testament. He goes from Deuteronomy 27. He then goes in Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Look back at the text in Galatians. He says in verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And then he quotes now Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. Paul's basically saying, listen, nothing new here, people. It's not just that Abraham believed it. It's not just that Moses wrote about it. Habakkuk prophesied about it. The righteous don't live by the law. No one is righteous based on the law. He says the righteous live by faith. Even during the time of the Mosaic law, legal obedience was not the basis for being justified, declared right before God. 
The law does not justify because its function is not to save. This is the key. God's law, both written in His Word and on your conscience, was never meant to save you. Which we'll get more into in the coming weeks, what is the purpose of the law, but as a sneak peek, it was meant to point out not only the character of God, but your lack of character and the need for another way to have a relationship with God because the law could never provide it because you could never fulfill it. That's why Habakkuk, he says the Galatians, was teaching this, that the just shall live by faith. The righteous, rather, shall live by faith. And then notice what he keeps doing here. Look at verse 12. He goes from Deuteronomy to Habakkuk to now Leviticus. He's back in the Torah. He says in verse 12, the law is not of faith, rather. The one who does them shall live by faith. This is the significance of Leviticus. The law and faith are mutually exclusive. The basic principle of the law is only perfect performance could win divine approval. But since that's not achievable, the law can only then condemn a person and cause him to cast his self on God. This is exactly what James says. Look, look at James chapter 2. James chapter 2 verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it, of all of it. The law operates this way. I mean, just think about this, friends. There are over 600 individual commandments in the Mosaic law. Breaking just one of them one time renders a person guilty. No one but Jesus has ever obeyed them perfectly all the time. So what he's basically saying here is good enough is not enough. I'd be glad to grant some of you your thesis that you're better than me. Okay. Or better than perhaps your friends. Okay. Better than your parents. Okay. Better than the people that are in jail right now for crimes that you've not committed. All right. It's not enough. It's not enough. Which takes us to the second lesson that God wants to teach us. Not only is good enough not enough, secondly, there's only one way out of condemnation. This brings us back to verses 13 and 14. There's only one way out of condemnation. Now, what you see here in verses 13 and 14 is that three things that Paul teaches here. And I want you to see it because it's just profound. Number one, what Jesus did. Look back to verse 13. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. So what Jesus did is he redeemed us. Redeem is basically this idea that Jesus made a payment that we otherwise could not pay. There are so many people today who are really hoping that there can be laws in place or kept in place that would erase their student loan debt. Some of you feel like, that. amen, I would love to have all my student loan debt removed. Others of you are not so much looking for student loan debt removed. It's kind of a spirit of like humble reality. You're like, I I'm actually looking for have all of my credit card debt removed. And maybe to your defense, it wasn't because you were just sort of a greedy materialistic person who just was not keeping your desires of flesh in check. For some of you, it might be because you had times of unemployment where like you literally could not buy groceries without a credit card because you had no money. 
Not all credit card debt is the, the, the expression of materialistic, you know, self-centered greed or something like that, discontentment. Sometimes it's really difficult times. You're like, man, I would, I would just love to have all that gone. I just feel the overwhelming weight of it. Or sometimes, honestly, you're like, you bought that car and you're like, I am upside down in my car. It's nice when I first drove it. Every time I walk up to it now, I just feel like I'm walking up to just a block of concrete tied to my ankle that's pulling me down. I would give anything to be free of that. Those understandings of debt illustrate for us in small, not in the whole way, of what it's like to be in debt to God because of your sin that you cannot pay back. Spend a thousand lifetimes trying to do good things and you'll never pay it back. So what you see here in verse 13 is what Jesus did. He redeemed us. He did it. He earned all the credit and then he didn't keep it for himself. He gave it. He made payment. He paid the debt of those who could not pay it for themselves in a thousand lifetimes. Which is the second thing that Paul teaches here. Not just what did Jesus do, but how Jesus did it. This is profound. Look at the second part of verse 13. It says, he did it by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. I can totally appreciate it right now. Some of you are like, what's up with the tree? Why is someone cursed by being hung on a tree? Is it the material? Is it the, I don't understand what's the big deal about the tree. This is a cultural understanding you need to recognize. In Jewish history, capital punishment for crimes that were committed as written in the law, capital punishment would mean that you would be stoned to death. Different states have different forms of capital punishment, lethal injection, electrocution. Some states have no capital punishment. In Jewish law, when capital punishment was enacted, you were stoned to death. But after you were stoned to death, you were then, your dead body was then hung on a tree, a, a tree, a post of sorts, referencing a tree. You were hung there as a sign to the other people, don't be like this person. This person is cursed. And it wasn't that hanging on the tree made them a curse. It's that by the fact that they were being hung on a tree showed they were already cursed, hence why they were killed. They had received upon themselves the righteous consequence of their actions. They were killed. And so by that association, everyone hung on a tree was cursed because what they had done required that response. Jesus being hung on a tree is radical. Because the last thing a Jewish person is thinking is that any Messiah who's going to save his people is going to have anything to do with the tree. He's going to come victoriously. He's going to come triumphantly. He's going to come announcing victory. And yet, he comes to die on a cross what kind of Messiah is that? Apparently not that good, because if he was, he wouldn't be on a tree. But what Paul is doing here in referencing this fourth text of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verse 23, 
Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It says, he became a curse. And here's the two most important words in this verse. For us. Circle it, highlight it, underline it. For us. This is by term imputation. This is the declaration. Jesus does something for another that he does not deserve, that they deserve, but he does it in their place. For us. Peter says later in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, by, excuse me, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness so that by his wounds you have been healed. So verse 13 teaches us what Jesus did. Verse 13 also teaches us how Jesus did it. Verse 14 teaches us why Jesus did it. Why did Jesus do it? Look back to verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus did it to fulfill the promise made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. All the way back there, Jesus was pointing back with his life by what he'd be providing by fulfilling what God had promised. Friend, every single promise that God has made, he keeps. And you and I might be on a timeline much different than his. We might pray today for God to answer a prayer, and by the end of today, saying, God, did you not hear me? God heard. God is working. Jesus becomes the curse for us. The redemption that Christ provides permits Gentiles to enjoy the Abrahamic blessing. And given the Holy Spirit, which, again, Pastor Chris prayed for, as we heard just thanking the Holy Spirit as a pledge of our inheritance in Christ. Some of you maybe heard about what happened on September 2nd, 2019, off the coast of Santa Cruz Island in California. It was the sinking of a 75-foot dive boat named Conception. The boat was anchored overnight at Platts Harbor, a small undeveloped bay on the island's north shore. There were five crew members sleeping up top in the top deck, but all 33 passengers as a part of the dive boat plus one crew member were down below, and all 34 of them died. What happened was, about three o'clock in the morning, a fire broke out, and all six crew members were sleeping. Nobody saw it until it was too late. That, fly, that fire blocked the, the normal stairwell to get out. And the five up top jumped out to their safety and survived. While in horror, they watched the boat burn as all 34 other people in that boat died eventually of smoke inhalation. 
They did an investigation afterwards to find out what happened and could anything have done to have changed this tragic accident. After all, it was the worst maritime disaster in California since the sinking of the ship Brother Jonathan in 1865. It was the deadliest United States overall since the United States, since the USS Iowa turret explosion in 1989. And after this investigation, the question came out, was there not an escape hatch? Some other way to get out of below than the stairwell? It turns out there was an escape hatch. But the problem was either twofold. Some of the people did not know about it, and other people who did could not access it because of its location. Everyone died. Friends, listen to me. This is what Jesus Christ is. He is the God-given escape hatch. He is the means by which you can be saved, not by running up the steps of the law. That pathway is blocked. It is only through the escape hatch of Jesus Christ that otherwise you can escape condemnation. You can only be saved by going through the escape hatch of Jesus Christ, faith in Him alone for the forgiveness of sins. Let me be very clear to everybody sitting here today, both Christians and non-Christians, because I want you to hear me when I explain this to you because it's an important distinction. Christianity proclaims the gospel, the good news. But I want to be clear what the gospel is not. The gospel is not a bunch of unconverted people telling other unconverted people how to be nicer through the religion of Christianity. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the story of good news of Jesus being told by converted people to other unconverted people how they can be forgiven of their sins through faith alone in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. That they're saying, we have found the escape hatch, and by God's grace, we will live, and we want you to live as well and not perish for your sins. For those of you who are Christians, think about the implication of this text with me. Jesus became a curse to take away your curse. And I want to just give you two practical ways for you as a Christian to process this lesson. The first one is in what I'll call the category of relationship. What we think of what others have done. Relationship, what we think of what others have done. Can I ask you as a question as a Christian? Why do you judge another person when God does not judge you? You might say, well, because other people are sinning. Indeed, they are. And indeed, so have you. Jesus is aware of what they have done. Jesus sees more and knows more than you do. Why do you not forgive another person when God has forgiven you? 
You might say, well, forgiveness is hard and it's costly. You're right, it is. Jesus knows. He laid down His life for you. The Father knows. He gave up His Son for you. Jesus knows about costly price of forgiveness. And He extended it. Not because you or I deserved it, but as a reflection of His love. So you have to understand, friends, a lot of times in relationships, what we think of what others have done can, if we're not careful, eat us from the inside out in the form of bitterness. Bitterness is like a dark cloud that blocks the rays of God's good news from shining into your heart. That sun is there, and it is shining brightly. But bitterness becomes a cloud, a dark cloud that blocks that light and robbed you of the joy that you otherwise could have in Christ. It's not just in relationship that this text comes home as we think about its implications for us. It's also in reflection, the second practical way as a Christian to process this lesson. Reflection, what we think of what we have done. That's where we have to go back to for the sake of humility. What we think of what we have done. When we have done good things, Oh, perhaps we receive praise from others. And over time, you begin to almost kind of believe, believe the press release, right? I mean, think about it. Commendably, a lot of you, I hope all of you, are great workers at your place of employment. Whether you're in fast food or you're a community bus driver or you're a banker, whatever you're doing in society, I hope as you work out the Christian ethic that's in you to love your neighbor as yourself, you are a commendable employee. And inevitably, if you do that, people will see and they'll comment, man, you're killing it. You're doing a great job. I wish you had more of you like you around here. This is awesome. And no matter where the virtue gets seen in your life, you might begin to think, yeah, I mean, I am kind of killing it. Wouldn't be bad if you gave me a raise. You begin to almost believe the press release. This is where I want you to learn to differentiate between encouragement versus praise. Be encouraged by acts of obedience in your life. Be encouraged by the display of the fruit of the Spirit, something we'll learn more in the coming weeks. But all praise be to God who is doing this in you. Encouragement be to you, praise be to God. Guard yourself from thinking the good done by you is indicative of you versus what Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, Christ in you. What does this do? It produces humility, which bringing you back to your relationship, looping back around, helps you see yourself in solidarity with other people who are struggling. So are you. And the same work that God is doing in your life, He can and will do in their life. Friend, a person's justification is by faith, not by works of the law. And this principle is not just new to the people of God in Galatians nor today. It's been going on from the beginning of time. My hope is, as it hits you today, as you be reminded of God's escape hatch in Jesus Christ, that you not only will have that affect you deeply, but also motivate you relationally to point people to that same escape hatch.
Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.